0: Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Skokas and today I'm joined by Adam Abdallah and Kalyani Nedin Gandhi to talk about unofficial ways of expressing dissent. We discuss where role graffiti, music and football fans played in the Egyptian Revolution and its aftermath, the 2013 protests in Turkey and Morocco and
1: Palestine. ابحث معايا تدور عالمستفيد في المصطفى İçlerin <gülüyor> çoğunda amfetamin, dilitin, yanı, weak, kokain, yanı, speed, crack Sana göre güzel ama bana göre değil, bana göre değil Kafana göre yürü
2: geber eder,
0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our episode today about non-traditional means of expressing dissent. We are going to be talking about Egypt. That's going to be my area of expertise. Adam is going to be doing Morocco and Palestine, and then Kalyani is going to be doing Turkey and Palestine. And I thought the best way to start would be for Adam to give some information on the context of why these non-traditional forms of expressing dissent have developed by describing what the case is in Morocco, because what's happening in Morocco is equally applicable to all the other countries we're going to discuss.
2: Well, thank you so much, Piotr. This is, um, I think, a really interesting and important discussion that we're going to have. And one of the ways that you can look at alternative ways of dissent is that in societies where you are policed more, where your discourse is more policed, where your speech is policed, to a large extent where there are not so many official ways of um, showing your dissent, your disagreement with government policies, you will find it that you will have to look for alternative ways to dissent. Basically, this is a way how political actors or citizens, for example, in Morocco, are protecting themselves. So if they happen to disagree with a government policy and they don't feel that dissenting from it is something that is safe for them, whether it be physical harm or something that would impede their career or social life, they might look for ways how to, be, how to anonymize this form of dissent. In Morocco, for example, you know, this can go from um, music on the internet. So this was like a huge um, intervention in political discourse and political activism in Morocco was the, the penetration of Morocco by the internet. Also, obviously, this is what, we, what we're going to be talking about later, is the Ultras movement and um, football fans in um, North Africa in general, but also in Morocco in particular. But uh, I was wondering what it looked like in um, Turkey, if it's any similar. In Morocco, you can't touch the king, the royal family. These are topics that are off bounds and out of bounds. And if you cross these red lines, then you will be persecuted. Um, So I was wondering what it looks like in Turkey, Kailani.
1: Well, in Turkey, um, it looks a bit different in that while, you know, Turkey is now known for having imprisoned the highest number of journalists in the last few years under the AKP government, Um, and there are certain things that you know, one knows that one can't say you can't criticize Erdogan in particular, sort of a unique feature of censorship in Turkey is that it's constantly changing. So even in terms of arts, the things that people respond to in public space and are entertained by and the way history is told, those are always changing. For example, based on towards Turkish Kurdistan, Erdogan has first funded a movie and then banned it later on when, you know, things fell apart. Things change quite a bit in Turkey in terms of what is allowed, what is not allowed. Street art is allowed uh, in protest of certain things as long as it doesn't push the state on certain issues. So it's one of those things that's very changeable and it goes with Erdogan's mood.
0: So you're saying basically that you're allowed to do graffiti and you're allowed to criticize things as long as you criticize the things the government also does not
2: like.
1: Exactly. Either they don't like or don't care about at this moment, but they could at some future point. You don't know.
2: And this is, I mean, this is something that is definitely um, a running theme, not only in um, Southwest Asia and North Africa, but also everywhere else. Like as long as you're staying within a certain space, which is defined by ideology or hegemony or whatever you want to call it, and this is something that uh, obviously is very exacerbated in um, countries where laws around free speech are, you know, not as clearly defined or protected as um, as in Europe, for example. To bring it back to where where we were, one of the ways people can express
0: dissent in in these countries is for example the first thing we're going to discuss today which is graffiti. Kalyani you mentioned that during protests that's like at a a time when many of the laws break down a bit and people use that those as opportunities to express themselves so for for example the Gacy Park protests in 2013 like graffiti played a substantial role could you go into that a bit?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I think in general, you know, there's this debate that always happens between graffiti versus vandalism. When you talk about graffiti, what is graffiti? What is vandalism? And I think it comes down to, in some ways, during these big protests, a question of, you know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. It's kind of like that. It ends up uh, being um, something of that nature. But I think what was significant in the Gezi Park protests was how widespread the use of graffiti was. And also, and this is, there's a lot of comparison done between sort of the Gezi Park protests and the Tharir uh, Square protests. And it's, in Tahrir you saw more sort of artists taking ownership. A lot of artists came up through creating these beautiful murals and, you know, they were recognized, oh, this is this artist's work, et cetera, or they've painted over this person's work. Whereas the Turk in the Gezi Park protests, for some reason, and, you know, there's no telling why or what really is the catalyst for these things. But there were a lot of symbols that were just taken and could be used repeatedly in order to give like a bit of background as to like why some of these symbols are used basically. But the Gezi Park protests happened in May, over May and June in 2013. Basically, it started kind of small. A local opposition leader, Siris Surya, and about 50 individuals um, decided to protest the conversion of the last green space in, space in Thaksim, which was Gezi Park, being converted into a shopping mall and there was a disproportionate police response and media response. And that sort of snowballed into this massive movement. And what was interesting here was that there was a huge amount of mass media censorship because Erdogan's very good at sort of controlling the media and the narrative that is broadcast in Turkey. But on the other hand, in sort of proportion to that, graffiti and especially graffiti shared through social media took on sort of a power of its own. And a good example of that On one of the days when the protests were really picking up speed, CNN in Turkey instead aired a penguin documentary. And so that gave rise to the name the penguin media, the media that won't report the protests. So suddenly you found like images of penguins wearing gas masks being stenciled all over the city and then the Twitter word wearing a gas mask. Uh, so showing, you know, who is censored, who is not censored. Graffiti was particularly good for sharing on the, on platforms like Twitter, Facebook, uh, and even their version of Urban Dictionary, which was great. <laughs> you also saw a lot of like the mobilization of pop culture at that time. So one of the things that was written on many of the walls is, winter is coming, which of course is a Game of Thrones reference the significance of "Tayeb," that's um, Erdogan's first name. And it's a very sort of, you know, disrespectful way of addressing him. And it's sort of really sort of uh, writing that in a public space is really making a statement, you know.
0: In Egypt, there was something very similar in that they would basically draw on inspiration from Egyptian history and uh, in Egyptian symbols to for their graffiti. So there's, for example, quite a famous one of King Tutankhamun dressed as Che Guevara, which is incredibly... Funny if if it wasn't for the quite sad context. And there's also one of Queen Nefertiti wearing a, a gas mask. And there's also obviously a huge number of pictures, for example, of the Sphinx, as it is like the preeminent symbol of, of Egypt. And then there's also a very famous graffiti called the Tank vs. Cyclist, where Tank is facing a bread boy and anyone who's been to Egypt, especially to like the slightly less expaty neighborhoods, has probably seen... These guys on their bikes carrying like a huge number or a huge amount of bread on, the, on their head. And it basically for many people represented like the daily struggle for sustenance. And what's also quite interesting about this piece of graffiti is that it was developed and it evolved as the revolution went on. So, for example, after a major massacre, um, the Maspero massacre, dead bodies were added under the tracks of the tank. And then pro-military revolutionaries would later remove these bodies and instead add uh, the army and the people on one hand, which with hindsight is an absolutely bizarre thing to say. And then this graffiti piece was also developed by more feminist graffiti artists that took away this slogan and then added quite a grim picture of a soldier feeding on a woman as if it was like a vulture. Just like in Turkey, it became like a way for people to express their displeasure with the regime.
1: Absolutely. There's like, um, in just in, re- in response to that, there were sort of three things that kind of picked up. And the first thing is there's a trend of using humor in these forms of resistance. And I think humor is we- weaponized basically, because it is a good way of sort of capturing sort of that sense of communitas, like a group of very disparate people coming together in protest of something. And humor is a way of sort of disengaging the state or whoever is the oppressive power, and their narrative about these so-called terrorists, these rebellions, et cetera, et cetera. Because when you look at the evidence of revolt and its humor and it's sort of teasing and it's like mildly insulting, that in many ways sort of takes the wind out of their sails because it's almost a mockery of the power that they're going up against. So people have often found in graffiti that it's good and it's sort of um, very useful to sort of weaponize humor in this way.
0: Yeah, like I'd um, I, I like to create counter-narratives because especially in the Middle East, these dictators stay in power by telling the West that if they fall out of power, they're going to be replaced by wild-eyed terrorists. Well, these people, like, through the graffiti can't highlight the fact that, like, no, you know, we just want peace and dignity and bread and not to be tortured as soon as we criticise the government, for example.
1: Exactly. Okay. And I think there's also a hearkening of their own histories, like you say, with sort of using Nefertiti and the Sphinx, etc. And even in Turkey, there's sort of a, you know, where re-co-opting this nationalist uh, sort of narrative that you're using against us Uh, I think those things are really important and of course the changeability of graffiti and the fact that you can add to it remove it and it's sort of constantly evolving it's it's a nice um, nice is a not perhaps a good word (laughs) it is an interesting sort of parallel to revolutions themselves right
2: yeah um, I mean talking about constantly evolving um, you know I think sort of slightly different obviously because of the imposition context, but um, when you look at the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian landscape, right, so this this is like a constant battle between who defines the space, right? So the space, unlike in other contexts, perhaps, is inherently political already. So you could argue that there is either a total absence, by definition, of public space in Palestine, especially what I'm talking about, the West Bank, you virtually don't have any um, squares in a refugee camp. You don't have any places where you could congregate. Um, and the only way of communication is basically these walls that are that used to be empty, but now they are uh, very densely populated by playing graffiti, um, which is something that emerged out of necessity during um, the First Intifada because the Israeli occupation basically stopped the Palestinian movement from communicating in any other way other than this you know they didn't at the the time in the 80s in the late 80s there was no way to use um, you know technology in the same way as we have today telephones were confiscated and I think lines were cut as well the only way that you could coordinate uh, a national movement was through writing on the wall you know um, which is something that is very effective in a way but also extremely Precarious because you have to remember that they would usually create these um, graffiti dr- at night. <laughs> the, the refugee camp would be under a hasar, under, um there was a curfew at night in these refugee camps. So if the, if the soldiers would catch you praying graffiti, you would get um, arrested or or worse. Um, so this is an, like an interesting element in comparison between these two very different contexts. But an- another one, contemporarily, is the, the apartheid wall or the separation wall, depending on what you want to call it which has become like a huge canvas for international like graffiti artists to come and paint on it. And it's, it's like a controversy. I would like to hear how you feel about it as well in terms of, because there's a lot of criticism relating to um, art basically doing something to the wall, which is making it more agreeable, making it more Digestible for the international audience, rather than just showing it as it is—a very ugly, um, oppressive manifestation of uh, occupation, apartheid, and colonialism, really, a settler colonialism. So it's it's it's a really interesting discussion. I would like to hear what what you think. Personally,
0: I I think if anyone makes the argument that you know they they shouldn't put graffiti on the wall, I think that's quite weak because. First of all, though, you know, if you have to look at that wall all day, you probably don't want to look at like this gray monolith unless you have to. More importantly, though, I do think it's a very good example of the medium being the message because the fact that people can graffiti there, you know, just highlights the fact that this wall has been placed in the middle of a society basically and is blocking people from from going somewhere. So I think it draws much more attention to it because when I saw it when I was in Palestine, for example, like, there's quite a few tourists around who might not know everything about the history, but they have sign in the guidebooks like, hey, you should go to this Well, you should see the graffiti because in many cases, this is very beautiful. And even famous ones like Banksy have, have gone there to to graffiti it. And interestingly, like, there's a similar parallel in in Egypt during the 2011 revolution as well. One of the murders which sparked the uh, revolution was of, of a guy called Khalid Said, um, and he was beaten to death by some policemen. And his name and his um, face was um, painted on the side of the Ministry of Interior, basically highlighting the fact that the Ministry of Interior was in charge of the people who ended up murdering this guy. Uh, as well, the Mugamma is the center of the Egyptian bureaucracy, and this is enormous building right next to Tahrir Square. And it became a canvas on which people could paint and it basically allowed them to reclaim a building and a location which had become a symbol of, you know, government inefficiency and corruption. So I think, you know, in any opportunity, like whether it's in a park or on the apartheid wall or on a government building in another country, it allows people to sort of reclaim a piece of land or a piece of wall which has always symbolized something very different for them.
1: Yeah, I think um, there is one thing that's really interesting about Palestine and, you know, uh, forms of protest like music and graffiti done by Palestinians. And I think it's this question that repeatedly comes up. Who is it for? Who is the audience of this graffiti? Who is the audience of this music? I think, for example, Banksy has created this sort of, you know, he's brought this international awareness of what's happening to Palestine. And obviously that was instrumental in sort of, you know, capturing sort of people who weren't familiar with these issues and capturing their attention. But there are people within Palestine, of course, who feel, call this you know, conflict tourism. You come, you see our oppression, and then you leave. And you know, you take a good picture, you take a selfie, and you know, that's, that's the extent of it. I still have to live with this wall, which is very beautiful now, but nonetheless, it is still a wall. And I think there is a middle ground somewhere there. I'm not saying one or the other. But I think this idea of who is it for is um, something that repeatedly comes up for, for Palestinians because of the nature of the wall who is looking at it becomes sort of a very interesting sort of idea because Palestinians themselves are physically looking at it, but through the internet, it's sort of reaching an international audience. Almost everything is built for that international audience.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to say also, I mean, um, I think, you know, you, you guys make really good points and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with it, but I would say that one interesting thing is to consider the fact that, you know, Palestinians have agency, right? So Palestinians themselves, it's not it's not like internationalists came in and they, they started this whole thing with creating graffiti right so yeah. this is and i'm not that this is not what you're saying obviously <laughs> but i think it's just important to really stress that centralizing the perspective of the people who immediately relate to that cause who immediately relate to that reality and actually i think you know a lot of Palestinians are not against Using this as a cannabis, as a as a means to protest. What it is more is their opposition to what Kailani mentioned, like like con- as you said, conflict tourism, or or people. You know, I I know that I'm going to bring this up because this is something that like I've had in me for a long time. So this is this was. The UJS, the Union of Jewish Students, they had on their Facebook page, if you go on their Facebook page and you look at their cover photo, one of the things that they had there for a while was a picture of them going to Israel and they had a picture with that wall, and it said peace, shalom and salam. Oh no. With like a dove, and they were there and they were like looking really happy. Oh, we're on a trip to Gaza, you know what I'm I think it was the Gazan separation wall in that case. One of them, it was either the West Bank or Gaza, but this is exactly like the worst case scenario that can happen with it. You know, this is the danger that can, that this foreign intervention in this space that is to be reclaimed by people resisting colonialism can happen. Like this situation is like the worst case scenario. So I guess this is, this is where all the anxieties come from, um, all of the frustrations, because if someone is making money of that suffering or, or, showing it as something that it's not, that's a, that's really problematic.
0: Yeah, I, I think you raise a good point because for every action and for every piece of art or graffiti somebody makes, there's going to be a reaction and like a desire probably to take it away. And you see it sadly very clearly in, in Egypt now that if one goes to downtown Kara, there's there's no graffiti anywhere anymore because the government after um, Sisi's coup and his sham election in 2014 have has removed all the graffiti in in pretty much wherever you can find it, and they even um, introduced a protest law which made protesting and graffiti illegal. And graffiti artists would get enormous fines, like often several years worth of the salary and up to four years in prison. They basically flip it on its head a bit, like UGS you mentioned, Adam. Where, for example, a quote I have from a newspaper is that. The statements on the graffiti are inflammatory and obviously made in haste. Obscenity is the rule and one no, needs only a brief tour in doubt and Cairo to become disillusioned. The capital has turned into a theater of insults and vulgarity. So under the guise of like protecting, I don't know, the good people of Cairo, they say, OK, let's get rid of all the graffiti and let's find the living daylight out of anyone who dares paint on a wall which allows them to basically depoliticize their crackdown as well. And it's exactly what UGS do by standing in front of this thing. They basically remove the context of why those things are there and then only look at it in a way which benefits, benefits them, which is very unfortunate. Because if graffiti is about reclaiming public spaces for the people, the Egyptian government has been extremely successful in regaining control of all the public spaces in Egypt by banning protesting and removing the
2: graffiti. I love how the journalist said, obviously made in a hurry. I mean, if you're going to make them illegal, what is the person supposed to do? You think they're going to set up camp yeah. there and just be like, okay, let me rethink about this and do it very really pretty. I mean,
1: I think, yeah, the danger is either it becomes labeled as vandalism or it becomes something else entirely, either sort of co-opted by people sort of with their own personal interests at heart.
0: Yeah, no, exactly.
1: And, you know... Sometimes happens, often happens with the uh, with the Palestine case, and in, it can be reduced to an Instagram post for some people.
0: In addition to graffiti, there's you know another very popular way of expressing dissent is is through music. Often there's music when when it can it criticizes the state, but sometimes it has to be a bit more surreptitious than that. But you had some examples as well of this being the case.
1: Oh yeah, interestingly enough, a lot of the examples I looked at. Um, were of hip hop music, which I think is less surprising once uh, you think about it, because of course hip hop sort of is a genre that grew out of resistance to authority, uh, sort of protesting oppression, etc. There are a couple of songs in the last few years that have come out in Turkey which have sort of immediately irked the government. ones come down really hard, and one of them, of course, is the artist Ezel who had a song called Olay. Olay means incident or event. And through the song, he sort of describes actually many events that have been taking taking place across Turkey that have fallen under the radar, whether it's violence against women, whether it's sort of corruption, whether it's sort of increasing inequality and whether it's sort of ignoring all of that in favor of, you know, keeping the ruling party happy. It's still on YouTube. It has 10 million million views. You can't listen to it on Ezhel's channel. Um, but it's still there. Um, but he was immediately imprisoned from being accused of inciting drug use through this song, which is a very racist attitudes towards hip hop anyway. Oh, it's all about inciting drug use, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, this particular. I, I just
0: there. quickly want to jump in because it's quite interesting that that's a bit similar to their criticism of the graffiti in Cairo, where they basically refer to like a good society and use that as as a way to suppress dissent in any way, shape, or form. Because they basically you know, try to hold on to conservative values in a certain way. Exactly. And
1: even though there was nothing really going against conservative values here, it was mobilized against this particular song. I think what sort of people who, uh, I think what was interesting about the song also, there was interplay between English and Turkish a little bit. So for example, he runs all eyes and then he goes on to say all eyes on me and that's kind of a really interesting way to say there's an incident and all eyes are on us and we're not responding or we have not acted a certain way and it was really interesting to have that
2: which is which is a reference to um uh, tupac's song all eyes on me the, or or his album so there you go but adam you also had some um, something to say about like hip-hop in in palestine Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hip-hop and rap in general is, I think, now the most prominent form of radical expression in alternative Palestinian culture, especially among young people. So you have people like Dam. These are authors and artists that really reflect the reality, their harsh reality of the way people live it, you know. So um, an interesting group as well is um, a group called Kitab 5, or Kitab 5, I guess. I haven't heard of them before. I started doing research on this one. Um, and they are a Palestinian group based in Lebanon. When they were asked about their music and how does it relate to traditional Palestinian expression of resistance, they their response was basically that hip hop and rap builds on on this. They they share similar uh, ideas, they share values, but they make it more relatable to the current situation of of the of young people, especially economic class. And also reflecting the oppression that they feel, not only from the occupation, not only from the Zionist entity, but also from the Palestinian Authority, from Arab regimes, like whether that's Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, obviously very important player in um, muzzling Palestinian descent. But it's interesting how you see it also relate to global issues, right? You have like collabs, like collaborations like with uh, these Palestinian artists, with Loki here in Britain, with French musicians, with musical groups in Ferguson. There's there's an amazing music video. The song is called We Could Be Free. And it's about like a delegation of people from Ferguson going to Palestine.
1: There's also an interesting point that this, um, he's a Palestinian-American hip hop artist called Ragtop. And he was talking about how Another interesting part of leveraging hip-hop in this way is that it echoes certain poetic traditions that are sort of common in the Arab world, like sort of call and response, poems about homes and traditions, poems that are both on behalf of either the artist or the patron or whoever it is. It was interesting to read about how they sort of incorporate sort of these two styles and sort of find these similarities and kind of merge them together. I mean, I hate to use the word sort of globalization, but that is the word that came up a lot, sort of taking something that is both global and local and combining it. But there was also another thing, another issue that I thought I would ask Adam as well, which is um, this whole idea of it isn't for us, if it's the Palestinians' feeling of this thing isn't for us. A lot of the American Palestinian rappers sort of felt a lack of authenticity, even though they have a bigger audience, they have more resources to uh, sort of protest and collaborate with others they felt that there was something inherently inauthentic about themselves. And also in terms of the choice of language, many of them were choosing to speak more in English than in Arabic because they knew their audience would also connect more to that. It's just an interesting sort of thought as in who gets to make the music, who has that amplification power.
2: That's a really good point, uh, Kalyani, and thanks for bringing it up. I I think it's interesting because the way I understand it, so uh, for context, so I was born in Prague, but my father is Palestinian, my mother is Czech. I see a difference between the Palestinian identity and expressions of this identity in the diaspora in Palestine proper in, in the refugee camps in Lebanon, for example, I see that as a different kind of diaspora than to the diaspora in the West, quote unquote. Right. So I don't, I wouldn't see them as less authentic. I wouldn't see them as any less worthwhile to, to listen to their expression or, not having the same ability to express as Palestinians like Anathir or the Synaptic and yeah it's an, it's a very interesting combination so i think one of the expressions of palestinian identity and the reflection of or the result of the nakba right the continuing nakba the, the state that palestinians find themselves in which is this diasporic existence one of my favorite artists in the world, not
0: like just one of my favorite Arab artists, is Kairoki. And this is like a rock group that still lives in Egypt. And their songs, most of them aren't that political. And when they are, they tend to be like very metaphorical to the extent that like a foreigner would never understand what they were referring to when when it comes to like the political messages they have. Uh, two other people who I can recommend listening to. One is called Hamza Namira. Amira. And he currently lives in London, probably because of his music, which is much more expressly and explicitly political. So for example, in one of his songs, he talks about being on a bus and saying that the bus driver is a crazy guy who keeps having accidents with the bus. And that obviously refers to the the current leader of uh, of Egypt, Sisi. You know, it, it is allegorical, but but not very subtly so. Um, but then there's another artist, uh, Rami Esam, who currently lives in Sweden, if I'm not mistaken. And before the uh, elections, I think in 2018, he made a song called Balaha which means date. And this became an incredibly famous song um, because it basically calls President Sisi a date and not in, in, in a very positive way. And he says, for example, oh, shiny brownie, Mr. Dates, four years have passed in disgrace. And then he says, you lived in gardens, we lived in jails, obviously referring to the massive inequality. But then he gets a lot more political and says, you clumsy, sorry, you lousy, clumsy loser, you desperate gold digger, you betray. And then he calls the soldiers loyal barking dogs. And the army is a very sensitive topic in, in Egypt and criticizing them that explicitly is in general a very bad idea. And then towards the end of the song, he does say, twinkle, twinkle, little star, I wonder where your balls are to the president. The consequences of this have been quite extreme because Shadi Habash, the guy who directed the music theater, which I can recommend everybody to uh, watch, he died in prison. Pre-trial detention in Egypt is meant to only last two years, but he was not released when he should have been basically putting him in in a legal black hole with no opportunity to escape. And the circumstances surrounding his death are a bit. Unclear. And then another guy who wrote the lyrics is also in prison and he should have been released earlier in 2021, but he hasn't been. And he has been charged with terrorist affiliation, disseminating fake news, abuse of social media networks, and contempt of religion, all for producing this song. And the reason I'm saying this is because of what you asked Kalyani about, like who has the power to make music. Because on one hand, I do think people in Egypt should make music about Egypt. But on the other hand, like the repressive apparatus there is so strong and so all encompassing that only people outside of the country have the capacity and opportunities to be like explicitly political there should also be an understanding of like the enormous obstacles they face when when doing so
1: so the artist that who made this song shanisher and his, and friends is the way that some people describe it. Shansher and friends in this particular song. And the song is called Susamam. It can be translated as I won't be sil- I won't be silenced, but it really means I cannot be silent. The reason this made such a splash is it not only was it released very close to Olai, which was the previous song that I spoke about, but also as it covered, you know, the musical styles of these 14 artists, it also brought up Very directly, it was all very overt sort of protests against Erdogan and the government. And a good example of that is they have a sound clip within the song of the murder of this woman called Emine Bulut, which happened in 2019. And it was very famous. It garnered a lot of international attention um, because she was murdered in broad daylight in a cafe by her husband in front of her ex-husband in front of her daughter. And to use that sound clip within a song, people found it very jarring, but also very powerful. And I myself sort of, I, it's it's very on the nose kind of messaging, but it is interesting that they use those kind of clips that have already gone viral on the internet and sort of using them again inside the song. You know, they address other things, including like environmental projects that have sort of degraded Turkey, et cetera. But I thought what was really interesting was that the song particularly addressed the youth of Turkey in the end and basically sort of says it's your responsibility and it's your fault. The line is, I'm sorry, but this country's hopeless generation is your creation, which I thought was a really interesting sort of thing to turn it around. Yes, all these problems are there, but who is responsible? Who's supposed to step up? Yeah, I just thought I had to mention this song because it made such a huge flash and sort of people sort of were responding so strongly to it
0: moving on to like the last section which is football and football ultras i didn't think of this until adam proposed we should look at it and then i was very happy we uh, we did so adam could you basically describe what role the ultras play in i guess the political scene in morocco
2: so it's i think it's absolutely fascinating because um, football is something that is so global and it's you know it's probably the world's most popular sport and game and it's such a huge phenomenon especially in uh, north africa people wear football shirts everywhere all the time you know it's it's just a thing that people do and it doesn't have to be a moroccan club it, it's very it's like a fashion international thing when it comes to ultras so ultras is basically a movement of fans it comes from latin uh, ultra means to be further away or further in the direction of than other people and it was started this tradition was started in the early 20th century in actually latin america and argentina and then it was brought to italy and from italy it spread to north africa and uh, in north africa usually what you would see if you go to football games there would, there would be chance especially in, your, in the european context but in North Africa, especially Morocco, there would be actual songs so the the the whole crowd, especially the Old trust, which, which is like the core of the fans, they literally sing for five minutes and everyone knows the lyrics and they don 't break the, nothing it just keeps going and For me, I used to go to football games and ice hockey games back in Prague, and this is for me so impressive because it, it's, it must feel absolutely incredible when you 're there and This really shows how much in need people, and especially young people, and you have to remember that Morocco is a very young population, 46% of the population are under 15 years old. So you have to keep that in mind uh, when you talk about that society. And so you can see how there's a huge need for uh, expression of political, not not necessarily even dissent, I mean, it's mostly dissent, but even of political opinion in a non government regulated platform and this is what the football stadium provides it provides a really high level of anonymity so if you go to a stadium which is also why people protest when the government tries to check people's ids when they go uh, to football games because they want to keep this anonymity because it protects them it protects people from being persecuted it protects people from being targeted by the government and face consequences for what they say the this Ultra's movement, its work or its avenue is most visibly manifested in the stadium, but they also do work in the neighborhoods where they're based. So in Casablanca, in Kenitra, like in all major cities uh, in Morocco, but also in Algiers. Right? Algiers also has two very important teams, which took part, by the way, in in the in the popular uprising against President Bouteflika, which resulted in his ousting. So there's also a way how these uh, movements feed into a more a wider movement into political culture and what agency they have for um, for people living in those popular areas and for young people, and I think uh, it might be interesting to look at one of the lyrics of the songs in in the context of North Africa, especially. And Islamic devotion is something that is present everywhere; it's like ubiquitous, right? You will always find in these songs. God, you will always find Allah. So one of them is, uh, oh, God, bring us to victory. And uh, that's how it starts. And then it says, you have made us lose our um, skills and you threw drugs at us. How do you want to see us? Money of the, of the country, the riches of this country, you have stolen away and you have given it to foreigners and this whole generation is lost and you killed our passion so you can see, and obviously when they're saying, you've uh, lost our money, you've given it to the foreigners, you, you threw drugs at us and hashish and that stuff, they're talking to the government, right? They're directly speaking to the government and to the stakeholders, which is something that they could not do anywhere else. And I just find it really fascinating. And I wonder what's it like? Uh, and it, the same it is, by the way, also applies to Tunis and Algeria. So I'm really wondering what's it like? in Egypt, because I think there's going to be a lot of parallels.
0: Oh, yeah, there definitely are quite a few, because the first, and incidentally the last thing you mentioned, was their role in the ouster of Bouteflika, because during the 2011 revolution, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to it, but a lot happened in Egypt in that period. The ultras, the Egyptian ones, especially from like the two main groups, Zamalek and um, uh, Al-Akhli, they were quite important because they had... Um, quite a lot of experience fighting the police so they could teach other protesters like how best to create bricks out of paving slabs and throw them at the police and how to deal with tear gas so what you had basically was like a group a well-organized group of people who are incredibly highly motivated and who are well known because just like in Morocco and most other countries like football is a religion in egypt and they were therefore like extremely potent opponents of the regime, both because of the organizing and because of their like very high level of societal support, because I don't know how it is in the countries where you guys are from, but in most European countries, being an ultra isn't seen as like a very good thing. It it's, has associations with, you know, drugs and violence and often like neo-Nazism as well. While in Egypt, people are big fans of the ultras. There has been some quite, Strong reactions from the government against the ultras because of the role they've played in the revolution. So there's something called the Port Said tragedy, um, which led to the death of 72 al al-Ahli ultras. And the government blamed the violence on rioters and hooligans. But there were several indications that that the state was involved in uh, worsening the situation because the security forces who were at that football match did not step in to stop any of the violence. The lights in the arena were turned off to increase the chaos. The only exit the Ultras had from their stand was um, locked and blockaded again by the security forces, which basically guaranteed there would be a massive stampede. And the Ultras were also made illegal in 2015. Unsurprisingly, they were branded as a terrorist organization. And membership, just being a member of an ultra now can lead to very long uh, prison sentences. And I think I wouldn't be going too far out on a limb to say that the Ultras might be the most aggressively persecuted group in Egypt after the Muslim Brotherhood. Because of the very central role they have played in, you know, discon- or expressing discontent against the the state, and this I don't know if this is the case in in North Africa or anywhere else, but in Egypt now most football matches, even before COVID, were played in empty stadiums because the government was so afraid of not totally controlling all air- all public space, which is basically where we started the uh, podcast today. And the unfortunate result is that because they're not allowed to be in matches anymore and because membership of an ultras group is now illegal, their relevance has declined.
2: It's interesting to see how extreme the, the oppression is in Egypt because in, in Morocco, it's a similar situation, although not as exaggerated in terms of oppression of ultras activity. So they are very much a legal organization, but basically what the government is trying to do there... There, there is a settled of laws that they pushed in terms of exactly controlling IDs, that means attendance at the, at the matches, or criminalization of certain activity. So for example, similarly, there was an incident in Morocco that happened where two fans got killed in a stampede in Morocco, and the government basically used it as a pretext to control their activities further. There's also cases where people got arrested after a football match because of the chants that they were or the songs that they were singing. It's really surprising some of the things that they chant, you know, they chant stuff as well as like, we're ready for war with the police, come at us, like we're ready for you, we're going to fight you. All Obviously, uh, all cops are bastards and th- these are very radical songs that they sing. They really have no reservations and it's really interesting and fascinating to see that because as you said, it, in the European context, especially so in the Czech context exactly the ultras are always associated with neo-Nazism like they are neo-Nazis they're violent they direct that uh towards minority groups and fascist Nazi ideology whereas in Morocco it's fascinating to see how it, it's really like progressive politics basically right based around context of the working class and um really disgruntled youth uh and and they also take it to like the global context and connecting it to palestine quite often and i i really think that this is a unique situation that that, that exists in the arabic speaking region i don't know uh, may, i don't know if in turkey it's similar as well but certainly in europe in the rest of the world you will not find football ultras movements as involved in community life and in political life and being actually formative of a political situation as it is in North Africa.
1: I'm sure. I mean, I can't pretend to know that much about football, but I, there is some interesting sort of comparison with Turkey because obviously Turkey is sort of very passionate about football as well. And to go back to the Gezi Park protests, because of course those were sort of these, this seminal moment in recent Turkish history, I guess. There is the Beşiktaş Çarşı Grubu, which is basically the best known supporter of the Beşiktaş Football Club, which is amongst the top, you know, Three biggest football clubs in Turkey, and they were they sort of were very well known for sort of mobilizing against sort of the police forces and sort of doing and sort of organizing anti Erdogan protests during the Gezi Park protests. I like their motto. The motto is Hershey Hershşekarşa," which is Charsha is against everything, and the little "a" in charsha is the anarchy symbol. So that kind of tells you about you know how they look at themselves. They are very involved in their neighborhood, etc. They occasionally sort of like do things with Greenpeace or whatever, like, you know, protests that they feel strongly about, I suppose. And they're also um, a group of very disparate football supporters who come together for this. Again, most famous, they're most famous for their role in the 2013 protests in Turkey. A particularly famous event was when they chased a, a water cannon away by uh, using an excavator, which I don't know where they acquired it, but they acquired it and they, you know, it worked. But what's interesting is that what happened in response, which is, I can't remember the date, but very recently, Erdogan has backed his own football club and that has sort of come to the forefront. And it's that's uh, it's a football club called uh, Basak Shahir. Suddenly it's emerged. It's not been one of the big three till now, but it has suddenly emerged. It has a lot of funding. It has the colors that they wear are of the AKP party, which is Erdogan's party. They have his uh, portrait, in their training rooms. So it's a very interesting co-opting of the space of protest because even the Besiktas neighborhood is known for sort of rapidly becoming more, if one could say, Islamicized, more sort of incorporated into Erdogan's messaging. So it's no coincidence that he's chosen this neighborhood and sort of, he's even donned their uniform and played as number 12 for a bit, but that's another story. But it is really interesting to watch how he's sort of co-opting this space for himself so that he does have sort of much more power over the space which could otherwise be used for protest. But um, one thing I did want to point out back going back to like the graffiti stuff was you had pointed out sort of the role of sort of the figure of the woman in the Egyptian case that you had talked about mm-hmm. and also in the Gezi Park protests women keep sort of coming up in these protests like the woman in the red dress as a symbol that's stenciled everywhere Or the woman there's a woman in a black dress there's a woman in a blue bra who which was um, a, a woman who a hijabi woman who was sort of while being detained by the police her clothes ripped and therefore you know that became part sort of involved inside the, these protests so I th- think that's really interesting how Women are used as sort of like symbolizing the protest against this oppressive state or this, you know, hegemonic power that is against the protesters. That's just a sort of a separate point. Don't you do with that. No, one no but I,
0: I think it's an interesting point, just because these regimes which people protest against tend to, as we said earlier, rest a lot of their legitimacy on conservative, often very patriarchal values. And then the fact that like women are out there protesting and expressing their opinion and being somewhere where their father says they shouldn't be, for example, already, you know, that's in itself becomes like a a revolt against the system just because of how, you know, patriarchal and how conservative and traditional the system in itself is.
2: So I think that's a very good point. Actually, low key in um, the song called From Iraq to Chile, and it's about the protest movement that was happening at the same time in Iraq. And at the same time in Chile, right? And he has this audio sample from a protest that was happening in Baghdad, I believe. And it's an exchange between uh, an Iraqi politician, who's a man, and a protester, who's a woman. And he's basically patronizing her, and he's telling her, "Oh, look at you! How can you be like uh, like shouting in the street like this? It's is this is so shameful." And she said, "I in in Arabic we say Ib, Ib. like uh, it's like this is a shame, you know." Uh, and she said to him. Oh, how can you be telling me about Ayyub when you're the one who's like got the country into the state that it is now? You're the one who's corrupt. You're the one who's really should be ashamed of himself. So this is like these two worlds come to clash, right? This like this fight for legitimacy and the fight for public space and expression of dissent. And I think that what we've discussed today, basically the the football, the music, the the graffiti and so many other ways that we haven't even mentioned today. Are all avenues and they are a manifestation of this struggle taking place in a contested area, right? In in politics that are contested, that are an example of how these internal conflicts that are maybe invisible are made visible by the people who are suffering, who are trying to express this and trying to make a change.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre.